Okay, Revelation 2, chapter 2, starting at verse 18, we're going to cover the church at Thyatira. Remember, this is the fourth of seven letters Jesus wrote to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. These seven churches can almost be grouped into two groups. The first three churches, Ephesians, Smyrna, and Pergamum, they were still largely true to the faith. They were still in the fight. They were still battling against evil. The last four, we almost switched gears. Now, the last four, only one had their act together, Philadelphia. The other three, Thyatira, which we're going to cover today, Sardis next week, and Laodicea two or three weeks from now, had largely succumbed to false teaching. They had largely um, just gotten worse and worse. There's almost a progressive worsening as you kind of go through these churches uh, that they really are succumbing to false teaching. Ephesus had left its first love. Smyrna was assaulted, remember, by the synagogue of Satan, which was the apostate Jews. Pergamum last week was under attack from the throne of Satan. And Thyatira, this week, we're going to find out it's corrupted from the inside by the, quote, deep things of Satan. So there's a lot of satanic attack here at this point in time. And Jesus, of course, had a word for each one of these seven churches and for us uh, personally as well. Here's the key idea. God is holy and God is love. We reflect him best when we practice both. And Roger kind of talked about that this morning. So we're going to camp on that theme a little bit. Remember that when Jesus wrote these seven letters, he uses the same format every time. So he starts with the name of the church being addressed. He says in verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, Now the city of Thyatira was the smallest of the seven churches. It only had about 25,000 people at the time. So it was a very minor church at that point in time. Uh, we know the least about this church, the least about this city. Interestingly enough, this is the longest of the seven letters to the smallest church in the most obscure community at that point. Uh, Thyatira was founded by Seleucius Nicator, which is one of Alexander the Great's generals. Remember when Alexander died in 323? They asked him, what do you want to do with the empire? And he said, give it to the strong. And there were four generals who really divvied up the empire. This happened to be one of them in 323. And the name Thyatira means unceasing sacrifice. So when you think of Thyatira, just get your pen out and write in the Bible, unceasing. By the way, how many of you write in your Bible? Make a habit, get a fine pen and write in the Bible. If you put notes in Scripture, anytime you read Scripture, you got your notes. Because if you write someplace else, if you're like me, you can't find what you did with it. So if you actually write in the Bible, you know, that's a good place to keep your notes. So it means unceasing sacrifice because it was a military buffer city for the city of Pergamum. Thyatira and Pergamum are both in the Casas Valley. You have the Aegean Sea, then inland you got Pergamon, and then right up the valley, another 40 miles, you've got the city of Thyatira. So if you were going to attack Pergamum, which was the regional capital, you attacked who first? Thyatira. They always were in the battle plan for anybody who was following the valley to attack the regional capital of Pergamum. So this valley was a major transportation network. If you wanted to get to the Aegean Sea, you went through this valley. And even today, there's a major railroad that runs through the valley. So cities are built geopolitically for lots and lots of reasons. But the city of Thyatira was really a military garrison. And it kind of functioned as a first line of defense for the city of Pergamum. What that meant is that it was overrun all the time. I mean, there were no natural defenses in this city. It was right in the plain. And they got ran over and rebuilt and ran over and rebuilt and ran over and rebuilt over and over and over. So they called it unceasing sacrifice, the name of the city at that point in time. 
The Romans took over this whole region in about 200 BC, actually about 190. And from that time on, the city of Thyatira could transition from being a military garrison to a commercial center because they had the protection of Rome at that point in time. So there was a lot of trade routes running through this city from inland to the Aegean Sea where your trade ships were. And the major uh, industry here was textiles, mainly wool. They did a lot of the big wool trade and they were famous for manufacturing purple dye, purple dye. Uh, they would produce purple dye in one of two ways. They had, they had a vegetable dye, a plant dye they got from something called a madder root, M-A-D-D-E-R, madder root. They still do it today, same location. They grow this root and they produce a vegetable dye, purple dye from this root. And they also had an animal source for this purple dye from a little shellfish or a snail called a murex, M-U-R-E-X. And they would have divers go down, get this snail, uh, shellfish, bring it up, slit its throat, and they would get one drop of purple dye. One drop of purple dye. So when you wore a purple robe, which royalty did, it was a very, very big deal because purple was tough to come by. I mean, the dye was pretty tough to come by. And Thyatira was unique in the sense that they had water that had a unique chemical composition. And that water plus this Murex dye would produce a shade of purple that was incredibly desirable. People really, really, really wanted it. So, intriguing, the modern city on this site is called Akisar. You know what its main business is? Turkish carpets. I mean, they're doing the same thing they've been doing there for, you know, a couple thousand years at that point in time. We know a little bit about Thyatira from Acts 16:14. Remember the, the, the lady called Lydia? It says, and a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, right? A seller of purple fabric, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So Lydia was in Philippi at the time. This occurred, Acts 16, and she became a follower of Jesus there. So Philippi is 300 miles east of Thyatira. Now, I don't know if you've ever walked 300 miles or taken a sailing vessel, but that's not a short trip, right? She was a... She was in the export business. She ran a textile export business and she sold very expensive purple cloth to merchants, largely a wholesale trade and also to very wealthy individuals. And Acts tells us that the members of her household became believers as well. So it's quite possible that her and her family were instrumental in the founding of the church in Thyatira. We don't know that, but there's some supposition about that. It's also possible, according to Acts 19, Remember, Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and Ephesus was really the regional port of that area, and so many, 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 many Christians spread the gospel throughout the entire Asia Minor region from Ephesus. So Ephesus was probably the mother church of a lot of these seven churches, or these other six churches we're talking about. So Thyatira, unceasing sacrifice, known for its textile industry, it's also known for its trade guilds, G-U-I-L-D-S, guilds. These were kind of the original labor unions of the day, and they banded together for economic gain. They might be clothiers, metal workers, potters, uh, bakers, any sort of trade they got together for economic gain and protection. Uh, interestingly enough, each of these guilds had their own little guardian god, little idol that they worshipped. And so if you were a member of the guild, you worshipped that god in that god's temple. So they had really kind of morphed into uh, religious organizations. If you were not a member of a guild, you did not work. It was real simple. If you didn't join the trade union, you didn't work. There was no right to work 
law at that point in time. So you either joined the guild or you were unemployed. So there was huge pressure to join these trade guilds in order to survive. Now here's the problem. If you were a member of a guild, you were required to participate in pagan worship, right? And these pagan worship uh, involved, you had to sacrifice to that God, you had to swear allegiance to that God, and you had to participate in the worship of that God that usually involved a lot of drinking and a lot of sexual immorality. So if you're a member of this church at Thyatira, you've got a problem. How are you going to eat? You're going to join the guild, you got to go to the temple, you got to do all sorts of wicked stuff in order to stay in the guild, or they throw you out at that point in time. So the third thing Thyatira was known for is occultic worship. They had a temple dedicated to fortune-telling, and they had a very famous female oracle there named Sambath, S-A-M-B-A-T-H-E, very widely followed female oracle, supposed to be able to tell the future. So we know the name of the church means unceasing sacrifice. That's what Jesus always does when he writes these letters. He starts the format. He tells you the name of the church. And the second thing Jesus does, he describes the author. He describes himself, Jesus Christ. Now, each church gets a distinct description of Jesus that is unique. Remember the first week we talked about Roman, uh, the first chapter of Revelation? They give you the whole description of the glorified Christ on the throne. He'll take each phrase of that and he'll apply it to a different church. So when he talks to Thyatira, he, Jesus the author describes himself using these words to the church at Thyatira, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. What's unique about this self-description of Jesus to these churches is this is the only time in Revelation that Jesus Christ describes himself as the Son of God. The only time. Now this is an explicit claim to deity. Most of the time in the Gospels, Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man, right? Because he's emphasizing his sympathy, his compassion, his care, his humanity, uh, his humility, his care for the lost and hurting. Here he describes himself as God, holy God, and judge, absolute deity. Now, we know that his judgment is completely accurate because, what does he say in the next phrase? I have eyes like what? Flames of fire. This is x-ray laser vision who sees not only into, he sees through and knows everything. He knows precisely what's going on inside the lives of his churches. <clears throat> I've wondered more than once if Jesus was going to write a letter to Valley Baptist Church. What would he say? Would we, we would clearly, we would fall into one of these seven or some combination or other. We would. But I guarantee I know what he would say. I know your works. I have x-ray vision. I know your works and I know your motives. I know what you're doing and I know why you're doing it. Jesus is never fooled by external appearances. He says, my feet are like burnished bronze. Anytime you see bronze or brass in the Bible, it's usually associated with the judgment of sin. Almost always. If they're feet of bronze, it means he can stamp out and tread down wickedness and unrighteousness. So Jesus now moves from who is writing the letter to who is receiving the letter. So remember the format. He tells us the name of the church. <clears throat> he tells us the description of the author. And now he moves into commendation. Affirmation. What is the church at Thyatira doing well? Verse 19. I know your deeds 
and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance. And that your deeds of late are greater than at first. You're getting better. So here's a paradoxical principle. You don't know the rest of the story, but I'm going to tell you. Here's the principle. Good works are no substitute for holy living. Good works are no substitute for holy living. This church is doing lots of good works. We're going to get back to the unholy living here in just a second. He says, I know your deeds. Jesus' assessment is very intimate and accurate. He sees everything, knows everything. He says, I not only know what you're doing, your works, I know why you're doing it. I know your motives. So you can do the right thing for the wrong reason, right? We, has anybody have done that? Yeah, I think most of us have done the right thing for the wrong reason at that point. He says, I know your love, which is intriguing because the definition there, the word is agape. He says, your deeds are motivated by agape. That's a God's love, and it's an unconditional commitment that's motivated by what is ultimately in the best interest of the one you're serving, right? Love is by definition service. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, and for those of you that have as much gray hair as I do, you remember Tom Jones singing it, you know, without love, I am nothing at all. <clears throat> the Welsh, they've got great voices. So this church loved, and you go, well, what's wrong with that? Here's the problem. They had fallen into the same trap of Ephesus. They loved, but Jesus was not their first love. Here's an interesting principle. You look at this group, and they seem to be primarily motivated by love for their fellow man, not primarily motivated by love for Jesus. Love for people can lead you astray from loving Jesus. You get that? Don't ever fall into the trap of loving people more than you love the Lord. Then you have an idol. If you love anything or anyone more than Jesus, you have an idol. And for many, many, many people, that's their spouse. And you know who's next on the list? Your children. And you know who's next on the list? Your grandchildren. Don't ever love anyone more than Jesus or you have an idol. You know what Jesus does with idols? Yes, he crushes them. Yeah. So, you know the drill. He says, not only know your love, I know your faith. Faithfulness. This was a working church. They were consistent. You could count on them to show up. They made promises and kept them. He says, I know your service. This was a busy church. They were actively involved in meeting the needs of others. They were getting their hands dirty in the messiness of people's lives. They were hospitable. They were caring. This was not a spectating church. This was an active, working, loving, faithful church. And he says, I know your perseverance. They weren't quitters. They kept on enduring. They kept on enduring even in the face of hostility. Even better than that, what's the last description? He says, your deeds of late are greater than at first. He says, you're getting better. You're doing more service, more ministry, more caring, more hospitality, more loving than you did before. You know, this might have been a very popular church in this town, right? They were busy meeting needs. They were loving and serving people. They accepted everyone in their fellowship. There was a lot to like. What's missing, <clears throat> and it's a glaring omission, is a commitment to biblical truth and holy living. So Jesus now is going to get, get to his criticism, his condemnation in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. He says, I have this against you. I'm against you. I oppose you in the following area. By the way, 
anything that God opposes, by definition, is sin. Got it? Anything that God opposes is by definition sin. It misses the mark of his perfection. Now, the sin in the church of Thyatira was the sin of tolerance. The sin of tolerance. Write it down. Tolerance can be a sin. Here's the principle. Tolerating sin inside God's house is sin. Period. Now, I'm going to define your terms. I said inside God's house for a, for a reason. The world is a sinful, broken, dead in trespasses and sin place, right? The world cannot not sin. They're in bondage to the enemy. Amen? Before you came to Christ, you were in bondage. You had no choice but to sin. Romans tells us that. You didn't have any option. You were a slave. You would expect the world to sin, right? So you say, well, I can't tolerate sin in the world. Well, Paul tells us in Corinthians 5, you better get out of the world then. Because the world is a sinful, broken place. Only the Christian actually has the power to choose not to sin. You have the Holy Spirit. You've got supernatural resources. So when I said tolerating sin inside's house, inside God's house is sin, is because inside God's house, you've got the capacity not to sin. I didn't say you exercised it. I said you have the capacity. Out there, they're going to sin. Have you noticed? They're going to keep sinning. Jesus came to rescue them from sin and death. Okay. All right. So our contemporary culture now, we've completely changed the benchmark. We say in our culture, the only sin today is intolerance. That's the only sin. Every other behavior in our culture is permitted and even applauded we except for intolerance. You know why people worship tolerance? Tolerance excuses their sin. We live in the day of Judges. What's the last phrase in the book of Judges? Every man or woman did what was right in their own eyes. Right? The only one who judges me is me. Not, not. God judges everything and everyone. And you know what his standard is? His own character and his word. Right? By right of creation, God has the right and the obligation to judge everyone, and he does. Human pride refuses to acknowledge God's right to pass judgment. Now, this church at Thyatira had love, which is wonderful, half the equation. They didn't have holiness. They didn't have holiness. And God is going to take them to task. The church at Ephesus had holiness, but they left their first love. You see why it's so important to get this in balance? God's plan is both the truth in love, right? Say yes. Love should motivate us to live and speak the truth in love. That's a good phrase. Live and speak the truth in love, right? John MacArthur says that love without holiness descends into immorality, and that's precisely what had happened here. And his indictment is, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. By the way, that's not her real name. Although I do have a relative who named their kid Delilah, which I just, like... Uh, amazing. You know something in our culture, no one even knows. Delilah, what a cute name. You have any idea who Delilah is? Well, no, not really, right? Well, even in our culture, Jezebel should kind of trigger some things because <laughs> Jesus calls this woman Jezebel based on her historical character and conduct. In the Old Testament, Jezebel was the queen who led Israel to commit sins of sexual immorality and idolatry. By the way, you know what the name Jezebel means? You'll love this. means chaste. Boy, did her mom ever get that one backwards. Yeah, chaste. C-H-A-S-T. That means pure, sexually pure. 
Yeah. I thought you meant no, chaste. <laughs> yeah, pure. First Kings 16 tells us that Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab. Of course, he ruled over the northern kingdom from 874 to 853. She was the daughter of Ethbaal, which was, of course, the king of Tyre. And she was the one who imported the worship of Phoenician gods into Israel. She brought those gods with her. And if you want to talk about a weak-kneed husband, Ahab was it. He was pretty pitiful. The chief god of the Phoenician gods was Baal, which was god of the storm, the rain. And his consort, Ashtaroth, was goddess of fertility. So Jezebel led Israel into practicing fertility rites, worship rites, that were in essence just sexual orgies. It was obscene. It was uh, perverted. She also tried to kill every prophet of God. Now, this is the kind of woman you wouldn't want for a neighbor. She arranged for her neighbor, Naboth, to be murdered so that her husband Ahab could steal his vineyard. Some of you might have neighbors not, not quite like that, but you know, anyway, who needs enemies like that? So this woman at the church of Thyatira was called Jezebel because she was behaving like the historical Queen Jezebel in Israel's history, and she calls herself a prophetess. By the way, there's no prohibition against woman prophetesses. Miriam, the sister of Moses, was a prophet. Deborah in the book of Judges was a prophet. Huldah in 2 Kings was a prophet. Philip the Evangelist and Acts had four daughters who were all prophetesses. It's, it's not an issue. They were, all, they were all called but for spiritual service, but none of them were a self-proclaimed prophetess. This woman says, I am a prophetess. That's a problem because in God's kingdom, you never appoint yourself to anything. Who does the calling in God's kingdom? Who does the equipping in God's kingdom? God does. At this point in time, you have someone here who is demonstrating a fair amount of self-will. I have decided that I'm a prophetess. And she was misleading the people. It says, she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. Here's an extraordinarily important principle I'd like you to write down. Um, principle. Our holy God will not tolerate anyone who leads his people away from him into sin. This woman was leading true Christians astray, meaning off the path and away from God. If you want to know how God feels about this, leading people astray, you look at Matthew 18, verses 4 to 6. Jesus is having a conversation about uh, children, and he says, whoever causes one of these little ones, and he's not talking about physical babies, they don't understand the gospel, he's talking about young Christians of any age, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, that means to entice them to sin, to cause a young Christian to fall into sin, it is better for them that a heavy millstone be hung around their neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's tolerance, right? Jesus Christ is intolerant of anyone who causes any Christian to sin. Do not behave in any way that entices anyone by word or example to sin. You're held accountable for that. This is pretty serious stuff. He says, better you should die a painful death than be part of putting a stumbling block in the path of another and they should sin because of you. Verse 7, Jesus says, Woe, this, I'm in, I'm in Matthew, Woe to that man for whom the stumbling block comes. Verse 8, he says, You want to know how serious I take sin? He says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Wow. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, right? He's using 
very graphic language to demonstrate that he takes sin so seriously because eternity is at stake. Do you understand that? When you say eternity is at stake, all of a sudden the stakes are forever. That is not a small description. I mean, forever is forever at that point. So sin is extremely seriously, and God's taking it extremely seriously. So this Jezebel, he delineates her sin. She's leading God's people inside the church so that they command, commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed idol. Now, the Greek word for morality is porneia. Porneia is where we get the word pornography from, and it's an overarching generic term, general term for any sexual sin. Idolatry, of course, is forbidden by the first of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. So we have this woman in the church who is not only committing adultery with members inside the church. So we have sexual sin going on inside the body. She's teaching other people that it's okay. And she's rationalizing these sins probably based on economic necessity. Remember these trade guilds, right? They had their monthly meetings or their weekly meetings, however often they did it, in a pagan god's temple. And those pagan ceremonies for these trade guilds involved idol worship. They ate a meal uh, based on the part of the animal they hadn't sacrificed. They had uh, lots of drinking, lots of sexual immorality. There was huge amounts of temple prostitution, both male and female, same sex and otherwise, going on every uh, worship ceremony they had. It seems as though this woman tried to justify these sins by saying, God knows that you have to work, right? You got to provide for your family, right? Got to do that. In order to work in this town, you got to be a member of a trade guild. If you didn't work a trade guild, it didn't work. And as a member of a trade guild, participation in these temple ceremonies is mandatory. It's not optional. It's like paying your union dues. If you don't pay your union dues, you can't be part of a member. If you don't go to these temple ceremonies, you can't be part of the trade guild. You're going to starve to death. You won't provide for your family. Now, God is full of grace, and he understands, and he's tolerant because he knows you have to take care of your family. So it's go ahead and sin, and he will forgive you. Very likely, that's the kind of rationalization. The interesting sort of a question is not... Is it right or wrong? It's clearly against Scripture, so it's clearly evil and it's clearly wrong. The question is, why did the majority of the church, who obviously knew better, tolerate this kind of sinful behavior and this kind of sinful teaching? Here's a principle I didn't give to Rob, but you can write this one down. It is good. I stole it from a singles pastor who told me 40 years ago. Your theology is often dictated by your morality. Your theology is often dictated by your morality. The reason the church wasn't confronting it is because many of those people were probably participating in the pagan worship ceremonies themselves. Here's man's perspective. Change your beliefs in order to justify your behaviors. I sat down with a guy here quite a while ago, and we were talking, and uh, he had one time he'd been very, very involved in church, et cetera, et cetera, but he got on this high horse, and he said, you know, God says that I believe that that settles, I don't believe that anymore. So I talked to his ex-wife, and she came in, and I said, don't tell me. He's got a male lover, doesn't he? And she turned white as a sheet, and she said, how do you know? I said, his theology is being dictated by his morality. 
we will always create a theology to justify our behavior. Now, that's precisely backwards. God's perspective is very simple. Biblical, biblical truth is the foundation. You adjust your behavior to the Bible. Period. Part of the reason we're here every week is we want to know what God says so the other 167 hours we can conform our behavior to the standard. The world says, I am my own standard. I will, I will create a theology to justify my behavior. Completely opposite of what God says. So the Lord calls out the sin and he says, you know, my heartbeat is, in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. Here's the principle. Our loving God mercifully gives us time to repent. This is God's grace at work, delaying judgment so that she would take the opportunity to turn from her sin and turn to God. And she doesn't want to repent because she likes her sin. How many of us like our sin? If you didn't like it, you wouldn't do it. Right? We clearly like our sin. It's just we like some sin and some other sin we don't like. As Pastor Roger said, anybody who has a sin that you do not have, it's tempting to get smug and self-righteous. And then when someone points out the sin you have, it's real tempted to start justifying it. Well, it wasn't quite like that. Yeah, it was. It was actually worse. Right? One of the wonderful things about our loving God is He's holy. He never co-signs wicked, sinful behavior, and yet he gives us an opportunity to repent. Now, God says she doesn't want to repent, and as a result of a refusal to repent, there are consequences. Verse 22. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed. By the way, the of sickness is not in the Greek, but it says literally cast her upon a bed. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, and thus they repent of her deeds. God says, you want to go to bed? I'll put you in a bed. You like your reclining couch at the idle feast. You like your bed of sexual immorality. I'll give you a bed you can't get out of. I'll give you a beer. I'll give you a casket. I'll give you a bed called death. Right? Remember, God is loving and God is holy. And he will not compromise either of those. We tend to want to move on one side or the other side. As Warren Wiersbe said, truth without love is brutal, and love without truth is hypocritical, sentimental. You've got to have both, and Jesus Christ embodies both of those. Here's the interesting point. There is a point of no return. There is a point where repentance is no longer possible. This is why when we play with our sin, we're on very, very, very thin ice. Revelation 22, 11 says there's a day coming when if it's filthy today, it's going to be filthy forever. If it's holy today, it's going to be holy forever because there's no more change possible. There's going to come a point in time where repentance is no longer possible. And Jezebel is almost at that point. This woman. God says, unless she repents of her deeds. It's intriguing to me that twice he says, unless she repent. Verse 22 and uh, verse 21, he says, repent twice. This is the love of our Father who wants us to repent and come to acknowledgement of the truth. He not only says, am I going to visit her, I'm also going to commit, uh, put those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Now, he's talking about his bond servants. He's talking about his children 
who are either having sex with this woman or following her belief system that it's okay to do this with the temple. He said, I'm going to visit them with great tribulation, literally crushing pain unless they repent. God's going to kill this woman and he's going to severely discipline Christians who follow her into sin. We got a biblical example in the New Testament. It's called Ananias and Sapphira. Do you know something? You will probably see Ananias and Sapphira in heaven. Just because they were slain by God for lying doesn't mean they lost their salvation. But God will not tolerate sinful behavior inside his family. This is very serious business. He's going to purge his family because he loves his family and he wants us pure. Verse 23, God is so serious about it, he says, I'm going to kill her children with pestilence. And then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your deeds. By the way, her children, I don't think he's talking about physical progeny. I think he's talking about the next generation of her followers who buy this argument and also lead other people into sin. They rationalize their sin and tell other people it's okay to, to commit sexual immorality and idol worship at these temple ceremonies because Jezebel told us it was okay to do this. God says, I'm taking them out because you're not going to lead my people astray. You know, Jesus is what? The good shepherd. Do you know what good shepherds do to wolves? They don't adopt them. <laughs> Right? They don't say, come in and let's pull some wool on you and you can be with my sheep. You know what wolves do with sheep? They eat sheep. This was a wolf eating sheep. You know what a shepherd does with a wolf? They kill the wolf because you love the sheep. So don't tolerate this kind of garbage in the body is what he's saying. Clean it up. You don't know how to do this. God is completely intolerant of sin and he's going to have a pure church and he's going to destroy those who refuse to repent. And then when he does that, he says, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the hearts. See, the purpose of judgment is twofold. God's going to either chasten or remove the one being judged and he's going to list a warning for people who watch it. Right? Now, let me give you something. You'll learn one of three ways. Hopefully, you don't have to go through all these. You learn about, we learn, humans, about 10% from instruction. Write this down. 10% from instruction. Somebody, God is verbally writing his word to you and he says, do this, don't do this. Here's the consequences. That's instruction. 20% to 30% of our learning is by example. We watch somebody else get beat for stupid behavior. We watch somebody else get rewarded for godly behavior, right? And we go, oh. Not only instruction, but you can learn by example. Learn by example. Whose example should you learn from? Somebody else's. Right? 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 The third way we learn is the most expensive, and it's also the one that we generally don't forget. It's called experience. Experience is what you get when you made a stupid decision. And when you didn't get what you wanted, you got, you got experience. Right? That's about 60% of our learning. Instruction. Example experience. Jesus says, I'm going to take out these people that refuse to repent so you can watch it happen. And when false prophets start to die in this church, you will understand that I am God. And I am holy. And I take holiness extremely seriously. So, consider yourself warned. You have it written down in your lap, right? Here's the message. Learn from instruction. Please learn from instruction. 
Why would you pick up more scar tissue, right? Most of us have plenty of it already, okay? God sees all, God knows all, and he's perfectly just. And he says, I'm going to give to each one of you what? According to your deeds. At the end of the day, everyone gets what they have earned by their deeds. Your deeds demonstrate your spiritual condition. We can see your faith by your works, by what you do. James 2.18, faith without works is dead. You know, in the end, God is completely just and everyone's going to receive precisely what they have coming. Sadly, we know that this church ceased to exist by the end of the second century. You know what that says? They didn't repent. They didn't repent. Same with the church at Ephesus. Jesus had told them, unless you repent, I'm going to do what? I'm going to take your lampstand away. I'm going to remove your ministry because you are misrepresenting me to the world at large. People are drawing a false conclusion about who I am based on your behavior. This is why it's, I, I said, God is holy and God is love. We reflect him, I, I could almost say we reflect him accurately when we practice both love and we practice holiness. And both of those are required, right? So, having voiced his criticism of this church, now Jesus is going to exhort those who are faithful. By the way, every church, for the most part, has some that Jesus is confronting and some he's commending, right? Now he's talking to the ones that are doing the right thing, verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. So some in this church were faithful. And Jesus wants to reassure them that he's not going to take them out. Right? They're not subject to his judgment because they're obedient. I mean, when you read this letter, you'd be going, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, this whole church is going to get wiped out. God's going to, no. The ones that God knows, John 10, 14, what does he say? I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. So even though the church itself is going to come under judgment, the members that were faithful and honoring God, Jesus said, you're fine. No, don't, don't worry. This is not for you. This judgment is for those who are not treating me as holy. The church members that were sinning, and they were proud of those activities, they actually called them the deep things of Satan. There are people today and people back then who actually believe that you could explore the occultic realm of Satan and not be harmed by it. They actually believe that the deeper you went into the things of Satan, you demonstrated your superior over him because you could, you could dabble in it and not be impacted. That would be a lie, just in case you're wondering, right? You mess around with Satan, you're going to get impacted. Not small, big thing. But Jesus says, those of you that are faithful, I place no other burden on you. Jesus says to his faithful ones, I'm not burdening you with anything else because remaining in this congregation with these people is burden enough, right? I mean, by the way, they just didn't have three churches on a street corner. You could take your pick. There was one church. In the whole city. So either you remember that church or you weren't a member of any church. And Jesus said, I, you got to put up with sinful people in this church and that's enough burden for you. Now he does give them an exhortation. Verse 25. Nevertheless, in spite of everything I've said, I have a command for you. What you have, hold fast until I come. Here's the principle. 
the battle for biblical truth will last the rest of your life. It's not going away. You're in a war zone, and you're in a war zone until you leave here and go to heaven. Period. We've said it a hundred times in this class. This is not Disneyland. This is Afghanistan. Failing to know the environment you're in will get you in really deep trouble. If you go to Afghanistan dressed for Disneyland in your flip-flops and shorts, really, really bad things can happen to you, right? Not a lot of protection against landmines. So the battle for biblical truth, he says, what you have, the truth of Scripture that you now possess, the faith that you have, the relationship with Jesus Christ you have, he says, hold fast. Hold on for dear life. It takes a strong grasp. Here's a word picture. Someone has said that the Christian life is like a greased fireman's pole. You know the old fireman's pole you go up down? Except this one is greased. Either actively climbing up or you're passively sliding down. But you can't remain stationary. Because you remain stationary, what will happen? You never slide up. Have you noticed that? You never drift upstream. It's always down. It's always down. He says, hold on tight. This is an active battle you're in, Satan, the father of lies, will never stop trying to deceive you. Ever. Until you're in heaven. Satan will always try and steal truth from you and substitute lies. That's his business. That's who he is, the father of lies. So the cure for deception is knowing what God says in Scripture and then obeying it. By the way, do you know that knowing is not enough? Knowing the truth is not enough. You must obey what you know in order for it to be effective. The world is filled with people that have a huge amount of biblical knowledge. The problem is they're not obeying any of it. So you see their behavior and you got this head full of knowledge, but you behave like the devil. What's going on? Well, you're not obeying what you know, right? You're not putting it into practice. That's what Jesus is saying. Hang on to that truth. Actively obey it. And by the way, I'm sorry to say it doesn't get easier as you age. It gets harder. The spiritual battles that God is entrusting to you now, he wouldn't probably have entrusted to you 30 years ago. And some of those battles come in little packages called grandchildren and nieces and nephews and loved ones who break your heart. And you are to do spiritual battle and prayer for those souls. It's hard work. Prayer is the hardest thing I do, bar none. You know what the hardest part of prayer is? Staying focused. You know? One of the reasons, you know, just practically, I tell people, pray out loud so you can hear what's actually coming out of your mouth. Because after a while, if you, when you pray out loud and you start to drift, your words will reveal the fact that you've drifted and you've got to bring it back, you know? Stay focused at that point. So that's part of your battle zone, prayer. Verse 26, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. These are the overcomers, are the faithful believers, the one who endure. He says, I'm going to give you authority over the nations. That's a promise to reign with Jesus in the millennium. By the way, if there's no millennium, this promise makes no sense. So I'm tipping my hand. We're going to get, we're just getting started. When we get to Revelation 4, life is going to get very interesting for us for the next six months. There clearly is a millennium taught in Revelation. A literal, physical millennium. Otherwise, this promise that Jesus made, it makes him a liar if there's no millennium. Verse 27, another reference to the millennium. He shall, God shall, Jesus shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter are broken to pieces, I've received authority from my Father. 
this clearly doesn't take place on heaven, but in earth. And there's going to be a thousand year reigns of Christ on earth and the sin still going to exist and people are still going to rebel against Jesus' rule even though Satan is bound. And he says, you believers, you faithful ones, you're going to be part of my administration. You're going to be part of my monarchical administration and help me rule planet earth. You want reference on that? Matthew 25, Luke 19, if you want to see the difference. And the word rule here, by the way, is poimeno, which is a shepherd's rod. It's the shepherd's rod that they used to fight off wolves with. And he says, by the way, Jesus has one that's made out of iron. That means he's going to rule the nations with authority and with power. You know why? Because some of the nations aren't going to want to be ruled. It's not a problem for Jesus the King. Okay? He says, and I will give him the morning star. Who's the morning star? Revelation 22, 16. Jesus said, I am the bright morning star. Your gift, your reward for faithful service is Jesus Christ himself. And the last verse, verse 29, he who has an ear, how many have ears? He says, hear with an intent to obey. Now that you know, go and do. Let's summarize quickly and then uh, Darren will come up. The key idea, God is holy and God is love. We reflect him most accurately when we practice both. And as Pastor Roger said this morning, it is so terribly easy to fall off this bandwagon on one or the other. Because holiness can come across as self-righteousness. Be very careful. On the other hand, love can come across really sloppy. Ah, there's no truth. Do whatever you want to do. Both of those are an abomination to God. So you want to do both. Good works are no substitute for holy living. Tolerating sin inside God's house is sin. You know who that applies to you mostly? Me. Point the finger. We should, by the way, if you're tolerating sin in your own life, you will never be able to deal with sin in somebody else's life. <coughs> so make sure you stand before the Lord and say, Lord, take the log out of my eye first. So I am intolerant of sin in my own heart. That's the first place to become intolerant of sin is in your own life. And then you can see clarity to help somebody else. First, our holy God will not tolerate anyone who leads his children away from him into sin. And our loving Father give mercifully gives us time to repent. This battle for biblical truth will last the rest of your life. Welcome to Afghanistan. All right. We will overcome because we serve the Lamb who has conquered.